If you are eating a vulnerable state. Let me play my part. Check to hate. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Yeah. Girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to like create change. The thing that space is decision-making, I think you have to have a sense of the person's concept of the future, and that, that whole idea of immediate gratification versus, okay, I know this behavior is self-destructive, I know it'll make me feel good for a while, but I know what comes down the road. I think that's where we can wrap it back around to eating disorders, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, in Kel's situation, her eating disorder was very self-destructive, and, and she was aware of it, and, and she was battling it, but in the moment... You know, she called it the dead zone, this place where you've barely eaten and the emotions get a little bit dulled hmm. um, and you get more and more numb. Um, I know a lot of people automatically associate eating disorders with like, you know, vanity or fear of weight gain or something. I, there's a lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. When you're not eating, you can't feel that much um, yeah. and it becomes a drug on its own. Now, I'm not saying that hers is everybody's, but I don't see her situation represented that much in the public. So that's why I'm telling her story. Yeah. So... For those battles that she would have been having on any given day, like I put a plate of dinner in front of her and she's got her mind fighting it out, you know, I know that this is going to make me feel and I don't want to deal with all my memories right. and this, that and the other. I know that in the long term, this is horrifying for me or in the short term, this is horrifying for me. But in the long term, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. Yeah. So can you walk me through what neuroscience says about a situation like that? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's... Uh that's an interesting, I think, narrative of kind of the story of, of, um, of eating disorders that I agree. It's, I don't, it's more uncommon to hear something like that. Um, and I'm sure you had a, a, a wonderful conversation with Dr. Hanos about, about yeah. this, that there's so many different versions for every individual's narrative of what an eating disorder is to that person. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is where science grows and learns from what's happening in the, the human realm from every individual story that um, you need to bring back to the laboratory when we're trying to understand what's going on in the brain. Um, and so if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's just like this idea of not eating provided a source of numbness that That's what she would say. became a new normal or, or a source of um, maybe why an individual who drinks drinks. And the idea of eating again, while obviously you need to survive to have nutrition, might bring that feeling back mm -hmm. online, and that's frightening. Yeah, she would talk wow. about uh, that's when she that's was... powerful. Yeah. yeah, so I before I knew her, I had never put, like, first of all, I didn't know what an eating disorder was. I thought it was a couple high school girls who think they're fat and like, what the hell's wrong with her? Just eat something. Like I had mm -hmm. no idea. And I'm open about that because I, I think there's got to be a lot of people out there who still don't know. Yeah. Um, but I would have never thought of it as a form of addiction, mm -hmm. but I started to see when she was getting ready to go to what's called IDP, which is intensive day program. 
for those who don't know, it's like a partial hospitalization. You'd go maybe nine to five to the eating disorder clinic and they'd kind of take care of you. But then in the nighttime, you go home and you're still on your own. So it's not a full hospitalization. Um, she wrote this thing in her little workbook saying, I've got, uh, I've got addict before treatment syndrome. I'm skipping meals left and right because I know they're going to feed me. So she was, the fear was building up. Like, I know I'm going to get here and they're going to make me eat three times a day plus snacks mm-hmm. and I'm going to feel everything. And she was like, just kind of, it's fascinating to see how she would observe herself from the outside yeah. and witness the self-destruction and, you know, had that roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. Um, do you, was it always that, was it always in that stage of decision making like the way you described or was did it take a different form months before years before well did it take a, a different form even time. before that right that's, that's just a snapshot, snapshot in time that i'm describing it's kind of scary to me because uh like in in my heart it's like kind of crushed by how hard she worked all the different times she went to eating disorder treatment uh, nine times in 12 years and still like barely ate and was struggling and then of course you know if you if you saw anything about her background, obviously she died of cancer. Mm. So when I knew her, she had more than just that going on. Because mm-hmm. um, I was always like, God, when when does the light come at the end of the tunnel, right? right? And she would turn to me and say, I've never been this healthy. I've never eaten this well in my whole life. And I'd be horrified, like, you've barely had anything today and yesterday. Mm-hmm. And she'd be like, she would just give me this look and say, it was way worse. Yeah. So all I can give you is a snapshot in time. But I know that that blew my mind when she said, like, I have this addict before treatment mentality right now where I know I'm skipping extra meals and mm-hmm. I know it's because of fear because yeah. when I get into that clinic they're gonna they're gonna sit me down in a chair and I'm not gonna get up until I eat and like I'm just imagining like the fear washing over someone who's right now getting ready to go to treatment or maybe their best friend is and they don't understand why they're so on edge yeah. um, it's because they're about to lose their crutch mm-hmm. and they can feel the floor is coming yeah. And again, that's me looking from the outside. Maybe I shouldn't be speaking for these people, but I'm trying to understand it. Yeah. And, and, you know, as scientists, we are, we are too. I think, um, I'll just chalk it up right now that what's going on in the human mind is more complex than we'll ever, you know, begin to understand, but we're, we're trying to chip away slowly at, at getting, it's skimming the surface of what the hell's going on in the brain, um, or things that can't be explained by, by the brain itself. Um, clearly our environment is equally complex and, and powerful as far as influencing our behavior, um, which we can circle back to mm-hmm. as far as our interactions with our environment. But um, I know generally speaking from, uh, f- from just the scientific literature as far as um, eating disorders in general, I think the old school of thought was that either these individuals that are struggling with eating disorders have some issue in feeling reward or feeling pleasure from from food in general um that's kind of like one of the old theories which we know it's much more complex than that and that there's this idea of anhedonia or inability to feel pleasure from from food rewards kind of similar to a symptom of depression anhedonia right this kind of lack of a hedonic response or a pleasure response like hedonism right so with an e okay right um i've never heard that word that's interesting right and it's and that's one of the the core symptoms of depression is that there's some issue with the ability to experience pleasure. But as we know, both in individuals with depression or eating disorders, that's not the whole picture. And that might not be explaining one individual's depression compared to someone else's, right? Mm -hmm. Some people might not have that symptom at all. (coughs) 
So, but that's one of the old school theories of what's going on in eating disorders, which doesn't capture the whole picture. And one of the other um, classic theories of eating disorders is that individuals are behaving rather habitually mm. or that there's some sort of habit response or kind of like a, almost like a robotic response, whether it's to food or other, other stimuli that drive these individuals to make the types of choices they are. And that's a different school of thought that, again, I don't even think is capturing the picture. Um, and in fact, in some of the work that um, I've been lucky enough to work on with Dr. Hanos with eating disorders is that we're really understanding how the brain makes choices and what we value. And it's very clear that not only is it not just a motor habit-like problem in an individual, but that also these individuals might be perfectly capable of exp experiencing pleasure. Right? And so how can those two things that have been the prominent theories of, of eating disorders be explaining our current understanding? Um, and it seems like there could be a whole host of different reasons. As you described, maybe like the, the teenager that wants to look fit and that's driving some of their, their eating behaviors. That might just be one type of explanation of why people are driven the way they are. And it seems very goal-oriented, like they have a goal in mind. Right? I want to look like this. Mm -hmm. I want to feel less bloated. I want to do look good in X, Y, and Z. And that goal in mind might be enough to drive people to have an eating disorder. Um, but you described something as well that isn't in that goal-oriented category, which is kind of just this like emotional gut response to food in general. Um, as if like the feeling of food just is has a sense of disgust with it or some like negative emotion associated with it that's interesting you said that she said that all the time that was the thing that was like the weirdest in my head that i could never like you want to understand yeah. your spouse yeah. right and yeah. she would just anytime there was food in front of her she'd be like i feel so disgusted right now right. like what is she talking about and that is something that can't be explained by anhedonia that can't be explained by a, a motor habit response where i just used to not eating and might not be even described by a goal-oriented picture in mind where this is why I'm not eating, is to get to some goal. All three of those things aren't describing what you're describing, which is this kind of just gut emotion response that carries disgust with it. But even the way you described it was even different from that. It was as if there was a relief to not eating, this numbing aspect. Completely. And that is a whole other layer that, um, that even doesn't fit in with those four things. Right? Maybe this feeling of disgust comes from the fact that uh, the thought of feeling not numb after I eat and living emotions with louder colors is frightening and terrifying. And the idea of food being the cause of returning all those feelings back to the surface, mm -hmm. that's disgusting, right? And, and the idea of eating is, um, why would I even want to feel all those things? Yeah. And that ties, I think, a whole complex element throughout all of this that um, is is pretty new to me and trying to understand where that's coming from in the brain like that that's a reward in and of itself like totally. keeping this state of numbness is a goal mm -hmm. um and it's very different from a goal body image you're trying to desire totally right yeah it's and that's not to invalidate people who struggle with of that. course i mean it's <clears throat> every the brain's so complex you can have 100 people that are behaving the same way on the outside and mm -hmm. there's we're really understanding how complex that it could be unique for every individual yeah um, yeah, that's interesting. I lost my train for just a second, but, oh, entry point. Okay. So there's only so many entry points into the human body and the mouth is one of them. I've heard it said once and I wasn't sure if I agreed with the person or not, but it stuck in my head that I at least wonder about it, that 
and this person was in the eating disorder space. She was a therapist, and uh, she had said something about, you know, the mouth is an entry point. It's a point of vulnerability, um, and that a lot of people who have dealt with, you know, uh, sexual assault or things like that are going to have issues with that because of that. Hmm. Um, I had never thought of it that way. I guess I don't feel vulnerable while I'm eating. Is yeah. that a, is that something that there's any kind of anatomical explanation for or neurological explanation for the sense of vulnerability? Oh man. I mean, I think that's, that's an interesting point I'm, that I'm not too familiar with either. Mm-hmm. Um, but vulnerable at what level? At like a pure... Almost primal, I'd say yeah, visceral, right? you know? And definitely unconscious. Yeah. I mean... She definitely associated eating with weakness, and that was something I could never wrap my mind around. I tried, yeah. but in the end, all I could do was listen, because I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, even at the at the end of the day, like, when an individual is, is eating, I think their whole mind-body is in a different state, right? It's kind of like the opposite of the fight-or-flight response, right? Mm. Right. If you're, if you're on edge or in a, a, a hyper-vigilant state, the last thing you're going to want to be doing is eating. Right. They always say like fight or flight, like your sympathetic response is kind of your adrenaline rush. It's when you're in a moment of threat or you need to be hypervigilant. And the opposite of that fight or flight response is the rest and digest side of your body where um, your nervous system kind of is like a yin yang in that regard. That if you are eating, if you are at a state where you can rest digest food, take in food intake, your, your body's kind of like in a completely different mode that's switched that seems to be like the opposite of guarded, mm-hmm. right? And I think that could be a stretch or a, an analogy of this idea of being in a more vulnerable state um, for, for most individuals, right? I think it's kind of interesting if that gets turned on his head in mental illnesses where um, that all of a sudden becomes of a period of time that is where an individual gets revved up and gets guarded. Um, that is not, for example, like, uh, the way most individuals experience eating. Um, it seems like that could be a a vulnerable state for an individual, um, that is more guarded, more fight or flight, more, um, revved up, uh, this idea of eating. Well, that brings us, I think, uh, around to PTSD, which you said you have a background in. Um, let's go back to your, um, research history and, and the history of your career, what brought you to that subject and what made you interested in pursuing that? Um, yeah, this was my, that was my first, um, experience being in a research laboratory, um, back at Loyola University of Chicago. It's a smaller liberal arts school. And I had a mentor who took me under his wing to teach me about neuroscience. And this just happened to be a lab that studies uh, hormones, right? Endocrinology. Um, basically how the body through the bloodstream can communicate with the nervous system through hormone secretions. This was a lab that was interested in studying cortisol and stress hormones. Um, and that was my first science mentor that got me into the field. Um, and he took me under his wing. Um, this is Lewis Lucas at Loyola Chicago. Um, and I think kind of just by coincidence, I started to um, fall into an area of science that was fascinating. I mean, we all experience stress. Um, we can all feel anxious, but then understanding extremes with anxiety disorders or PTSD, I knew nothing about this. I was a college student. And so I became fascinated by something that all of us are very familiar with and trying to tackle it from a scientific angle. Um, and I learned a crap ton about what even is this idea of PTSD. Um, 
without having any personal experience or personal ties to it, I kind of, my first steps into this realm was from an academic perspective. And then I got closer to understanding what life might be like for, for individuals suffering from this. Um, and I started to do research both in lab rats in a laboratory, all the way up to working with patients in a hospital. And I got to see a little bit of both sides. And that's, that's what ultimately drove me into wanting to do both medicine and science is I get to at least have a foot in each of these worlds of seeing what it's like for individuals, patients struggling with this, and then what I can do from a scientific side in the laboratory. That's fascinating. I think a lot of the people, um, I think I, I assume a lot of times if anyone's involved in psychology that they've dealt with things on their own and that they're working through it intellectually and that brings them to the science. But it seems like you were brought to the science and now your heart is following. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, my emotions are on 11 because I'm always talking about my wife. Yeah. And uh, and I'm trying to get to the intellectual side to wrap it because I've got a few decades left to wrap my head around this. So it's interesting we're like dovetailing opposites yeah. of each other. I think we I think that's what I've loved about <laughs> just being in this career path is everyone gets to this from different journeys, their own different experiences. And I think you're you're absolutely right. I I came into this from a fascination with science. When I started medical school, I didn't think I wanted to go into psychiatry at all. I was like, there's no one. I was like, I don't want to do that. And after spending four years in a neuroscience laboratory, understanding memories and decision-making, um, purely from a fascinated by the science part of it, after spending four years of that, diving into um, understanding addiction and other behavioral disorders, by the end of my PhD, when I jumped back into medical school, I was like, this is the only thing I care about. And now I get to actually see patients struggling with this. And if I can do something to change the way we think about mental illnesses. And I fell in love with understanding psychiatry and mental illnesses and doing what I can as a physician um, in the future to help these individuals. But you're right. I started from purely intellectual. The, the, neuro, the neuroscience was cool. The neuroscience was fascinating. And what we're doing in the laboratory is mind-blowing. It's almost science fiction that really? I can artificially rewire a memory in the brain in a mouse to understand what that memory does to our future behaviors. That's what some of my work is on. From a pure scientific standpoint, it's fascinating. It's enjoyable. I think about it all the time. I'm motivated more than anything to continue to do this type of research. Um, and then I get a huge dose of um, seeing what life is like for patients struggling with this. And then that's how my passions grew into it. So right now, somewhere in the world, someone's listening to this podcast or maybe hearing Kel's album for the first time and connecting with her on that level. And they're carrying something... Um, you know, something unthinkable, something almost impossible to process. Um, where's the research taking us? You just gave me a tiny snapshot. Can you open that door a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple different, um, you know, potential paths forward for psychiatry. And, and as a medical student, I'm still, you know, in my early stages of training, learning about where mental health is going and where research can take us. Um, but I think there's a couple big, um, big hurdles right now that we're, we're trying to overcome as a field, um, that neuroscience is helping with and taking us. Um, you mentioned just trying to process what's going on. I think, um, one of the big questions is, do we even understand what we're diagnosing when we make diagnoses? All right. I think that's been one of the things in psychiatry and mental health in general, um, that has been both a blessing and, um, and a, and a curse at the same time. Um, the way we currently diagnose mental illnesses are based on a collection of symptoms. And it's been extremely useful to have a rule book, a handbook, the, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Psychiatric Illnesses, 
that uh, the field has agreed upon that we can categorize and cluster groups of symptoms in a similar way across different providers, across different cultures, across time. And that's been one of the, the strengths of psychiatry is that we've gotten pretty consistent in diagnosing people on similar clusters of symptoms. But that actually does very little to tell us what's going on in the brain and how we can begin to treat someone. Um, and so research is really working on that front of psychiatry of redefining how we even define a, a mental illness. Um, and where we're, that's one potential hurdle that the field is trying to overcome and trying to work on that research and neuroscience is helping with. Um, because frankly, no other field of medicine works that way. If you walk into the hospital with chest pain, the first thing they teach you in medical school is to make a list of the possible diagnoses that could be driving that symptom. Mm-hmm. Right? You could you be start ruling them out. You start ruling them out. That's how that's how medicine is taught. Yeah. That's how it works on Doctor House. If you watch House, <laughs> right? You make a differential diagnosis. Someone could be having a heart attack. They could be having acid reflux. They could be having an issue with their lungs. They could have uh, shingles on their chest that presents with the exact same feeling of chest pain. Um, you make a whole list, um, and then you start your workup. You order labs, you get an EKG, you get an x-ray, you get a CT scan, you do blood tests, and then you begin to roll out so that you know how you should be treating the symptom that looks the same in these 10 patients. They have 10 different causes of that symptom, right? Psychiatry doesn't work that way. We start with the symptoms, we've made the diagnosis, we start treating based on the symptoms alone without any understanding of the pathophysiology or what's going on under the hood. Mm-hmm. And psychiatry and research and neuroscience research is actively moving now towards let's actually start thinking about depression or eating disorders or PTSD, like chest pain. That's the starting point. And now we need to do the lab workup, Hmm. right? The University of Minnesota, our new chair, Dr. Sofia Vinogradov, she says, where's the blood test for depression? Totally. Right? Yeah. And not that it's going to be solved by a blood test, but the point being is everyone's going to have a different fingerprint. We need to not based diagnoses and symptoms alone, but our understanding of the biology. Biology. Okay, here's a weird one for you. You'll probably think this is uh, very easy to explain, but I couldn't understand it. When I was a teenager, um, like, you know, it was not the worst childhood, but my, my parents were splitting up and that kind of stuff that people deal with and being gay in the 90s was a little bit different than it is today. And so there were stressors and stuff. And I've always, always just kind of dealt with depression. So I'm at this guy's doctor's office and uh, I think I was there with my mom and... Uh, I don't remember what prompted us to go, but I'm describing all these things, how I feel, and da da da. And it's like a regular doctor. It's not a psychologist or a therapist's office. And he has me, I'll never forget this. This is like burned into my brain. He has me stand up and walk heel to toe in a straight line. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking down at my Converse All Stars and just stumbling. And like, why am I struggling? This is walk in a straight line, touch your heel to your, mm-hmm. exactly like that. And I couldn't do it. And I sit back down. And he goes, You're depressed. I was like, okay, wait, so is this a balance thing? So now that's got me curious about the physiology of depression. You just said, where's the blood test? Well, this guy mm-hmm. had some physical, something that he was looking for, you right. know, a trait, a symptom, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that was part of the exam. That yeah. was his exam. So that's right. fascinating to me. Yeah. Do you have any idea what, what brought him to that? Or is there anything what did between he say to balance you? and depression? What did he say to you when you asked about... Uh, he, well, when I, I, when I couldn't fucking walk, <laughs> when I couldn't walk and you know, I was kind of clumsying my way through the office and then sat back down, he said, he said, I think you've got depression. That's what's going on here. And that just blew my mind because hmm. here I am staring at my feet and, you know, 
then all of a sudden he's telling me what's going on in my mind. Yeah. So that's just fascinating to me. And the whole point of the Kelly Nicole Foundation, like if I if I died tomorrow and someone was like, well, what did you do all this for? What I did this for is because I believe there's a bridge between biography and biology that doesn't get enough attention. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to a lot of clinics once we got the cancer diagnosis uh, over and over and over. And before we had it, over and over and over, all these different places. And they never were interested in who she was as a person. I don't mean like small talk, how was your weekend? I mean like, what have you been through? Yeah. And we know with the ACEs study from the 90s, Adverse Child ex- Experiences, that uh, there's a bridge between biology and biography. That's mm-hmm. my wording. Um, and I just think that it's not being taught at the general medical level. If you have a specialty in trauma, you get it. You understand that study. Yeah. But then I don't think they're teaching it to the average nurse, the average doctor, general practitioner. Um, and I couldn't believe, this isn't to disrespect doctors, I know you're a, cer- a researcher and everything and you're a scientist, but I was shocked by the intellectual incuriosity that that still hurts like why do these people not screen when they know that trauma gives people diseases of the aging population at a much younger age and what we heard over and over again is oh she's got this weird pain in her lower abdomen right she died of ovarian cancer um and what we heard from the doctors was thank god it's not cancer thank god you're too young for cancer Mm. and she was gone the next year so i tell people she was old on the inside and they wrote that off pretty quickly. They didn't even check. They yeah. watched it grow on ultrasound hmm. and said, oh, you've got cysts, lucky it's not cancer, and they didn't, te- they didn't check anything. And um, this isn't some story of like, oh, I'm, you know, if they had listened, then no one would ever get cancer again. It's just a matter of they didn't have any interest in what she had been through. And when I said to people later, when we were in the regular hospital rooms after the diagnosis, I'd be like, you know, She's been through some stuff because they still couldn't believe it. They biopsied over and over and over. They said, this is not classic ovarian. This is not how this disease prevents. You're young. You're fit. This doesn't make sense. And they again and again and again. And finally, I was like, you know, she's been through some stuff. And they would shake their head and swat swat their hand at me and say, there's no link. There's no link from trauma to cancer. And I just kind of want to put the middle finger up. Yeah. So that's that's why you're here today. (laughs) At, at At what point did they do that first biopsy? That they would otherwise say, this is a cyst for someone of your age. We're not even going to bother like biopsying. Like, when did we get the word cancer? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I guess I'll tell this story. Um, yeah, I can tell it. Um, so the pain was back again. She had horrific pain and tons of bleeding and, mm-hmm. and obviously in her ovaries. And um, it was back again. And uh, she had this look in her face that was just this level of fear I hadn't seen before. And, and she said, baby, something's wrong. In between, like, sobs, you know. And somehow I got her into the car and got to the ER and I threw a temper tantrum to end all temper tantrums. I was moving furniture so I could, like I walked into the waiting room, grabbed a chair, couch thing, brought it over and said, here, sit baby. And just screamed at the person behind the glass and said, I pointed at her ovaries and said, these come out tonight, get a table, get a knife, no more excuses, no more stories. I don't care that it's not dangerous. I want them out right now. I remember those words. Burned in my memory. I don't care Mm. that it's not dangerous. I don't care that she's not in danger. Because that was the word. It's just Mm. cysts. And I'd be like, eh, yeah, but, you know, she's in screaming pain. You know, it's just my wife. And so I was focused on the compassion piece of it and the pain management. And then a few hours later, uh, we're we're there in the ER, and this doctor comes back into the room white-faced and says, it's cancer. It's everywhere. And he traced his arm from here all the way up along here, meaning both ovaries, liver, both lungs. It was everywhere. She was covered head to toe. Uh, 
metastatically spreading and lymphatically. Um, so, yeah. What about all the people who don't have someone to pitch a fit in the local ER yeah. and drag furniture around and scream and say, get a knife right now. I don't want to hear any stories. Yeah. I don't want to hear about ultrasound. I don't want to hear about excuses. I don't want to hear she's not in danger. It's not cancer. Take these out of her body tonight. We're not going home. Yeah. That's what I did. Yeah. Wow. I know that sounds insane, but I was insane by then. She yeah. was in pain. And you knew her narrative and her story. And it yes. seemed like most people weren't. Well, you wouldn't talk about interested. something like that. Like, yeah. Again, like there's always or they think this it's, issue. Or, or they think it's irrelevant for. A, That's the thing right? I'm afraid of. They don't think it matters, right. and that there's like like we were talking about the heart and the intellect a second ago, and isn't it great when they unite? Mm-hmm. Well, I like how common is that in the research world for someone to be able to show their emotions, say, "Oh, that person really puts a lot of heart into their their neuroscience <laughs> studies." You know, is that even common, or is it more like, "Hey, hey, you know, we're serious people. We want to be taken seriously. Button it up." Yeah. Because I think I think that uh, the medical world could stand an infusion of humanity. Yeah, I mean that's that's also what drew me. Science aside, that's also what drew me into psychiatry, is understanding the narrative, understanding the person and their history, especially for individuals who no one else would give them the time of day. That's what I learned the most when I did my first month in psychiatry, and I fell in love with it. That this narrative is part of who they are and what brought them to today. Yeah, um, and forget the science for a second, but just the human side of that was appealing to me. And I loved making those connections with individuals, bringing the science back in. I mean, that's, that was the other laboratory I worked in. It was how does our experiences shape our biology? Um, you said it, you said it, you know, someone who's gone through something traumatic like that makes diseases of old age more, more common in individuals like that. Um, right. I mean, that's, the the incuriosity that you see in medicine is because they're they're playing the probabilities, right? This is less than five percent of chance that this would happen in someone in this age group, so we're not even going to think about it. All but right. they don't screen for trauma, right? So can we get the generalists to start screening for trauma? And I I think um, the the biology of biography, as you put it, mm-hmm. I think is that aspect of science is building more and more and more. Um, I mean, I had the fortunate opportunity to, to train across the street and with people in the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota, understanding childhood trauma and what that means for trajectory in later life. Yeah. Um, and people are actively working on this. The scientific worlds and the medical worlds often are, operate in different timelines. That's what I'm asking right? is like, yeah. okay, you're saying all the right things and, and it's like, okay, why hasn't this translated into a new standard of care? Is it because that's like moving a mountain? I th- standard of care doesn't change every week, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, you're talking to someone specifically training in both worlds at the same time. And I watch yeah. these, sometimes these are trains passing at night. They're on different time skills on different yeah. tracks. Um, and you know, it, historically people are trained in completely different worlds in medicine. You're trained to recognize the constellation of symptoms and know how to treat with what we have. And you're not necessarily trained with changing medicine. Right. And then you have scientists on the other side that are actively working on discovery and new ways to understand the human body. Um, but they might be so far removed from the front lines of medicine that they talk about what this might mean for impacting health and science and, and changing medicine. But, um, it's always like, this is the implication. We're not going to actually get there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they're completely different worlds. And so I'm people like me in the physician scientist training program or, or anyone that has an interest that curiosity that you're looking for in clinicians or vice versa, the clinical interest for scientists, 
I think the field needs more people spanning both of these worlds. Mm -hmm. And um, that's specifically why I'm being trained to live in both of these worlds at the same time. Um, I mean, you know, for crying out loud, like um, children being separated at the border from their families. Oh. I don't need to show you the neuroscience behind that to show you, to tell you that that's, that's going to have a long lasting detrimental impact on these kids, separating kids from their parents. You've altered this child's adult health. And do people get that? Right. And psychology could tell us this from many, many, many years ago. Um, yet there are people actively working on the neurobiology of what's happening to the development of individuals that are separated like this, um, simply because it'll make the policymakers or these other forces and entities listen up more. If I can show you the brain scan of what this is actually doing. A lot of it, I was just talking about this with, with uh, Francis Shen, that a lot of this becomes an issue with visibility. What um, do you mean? As far as putting a tangible finger on what exactly this is doing. And, um, it's not like chicken pox. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's troubling, but also I, for the individuals that are trying to make a change, it's, it's hopeful that we're making progress and that we're not just spinning our wheels. Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is from Amplified!